Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. We're going to be talking about the ASU GSV conference. We actually had boots on the ground in the form of Mike Merrill, who is joining me again on the show. Mike, welcome back to Trending in Education. Hey, Mike. It's great to be here. Uh, Mike is the Chief Product Officer at Clash TV. He's also someone who is keeping his eye on where the world of ed tech is going. We've known each other for years. You've helped me out on, on the show in the past, and we've had you on at least once, uh, and then hopefully we'll have you on again in the future. But uh, we wanted to spend a little time today following up on the conversation that I had with Nancy, my oh, vir yeah. our virtual co-host, on a, a recent episode of Trending in Education about conferences and about ASU GSV. Also talked about podcast movement, where we'll have another show to follow up on that conference as well. But ASU GSV is a conference that's been around for several years. This year, it was in San Diego. I've always tracked news coming out of it. When we were at Kaplan, frequently a contingent of folks would attend. It's the conference to go to if you're interested in educational technology and investment, whether it's venture capital or startups, private equity, it's a place to understand who's going to be acquired by whom, who's partnering with whom, and what's on the horizon for ed tech and for education more broadly. It's also a global conference, which is interesting, but I was musing about how attending it online may not be as great as attending it in person. And that's part of why I wanted to get you on, Mike, since you were attending it in person, what was the experience like? And then from there, I think we can get into some of what you were picking up around trends, around the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning as it relates to, to education. But before we go there, I'd love to get some broader impressions of what it felt like to be at a conference again, and then also at this ed tech investment, future-oriented strategic conference. Yeah, great. Thanks, thanks, Mike. Uh, it was great to be there. I hadn't been in a couple of years, but it's a great conference. It's in San Diego, which even in August is a wonderful place to be. Great weather, fish tacos. Yeah. It's a terrific conference. And as you said, it is the kind of premier ed tech and I call educational reform through investment conference. I know that's a long, that's, that's, a, good. That's, a, that works. that's a tongue twister, but that's a focus. So there's some people there who uh, are trying to change education for the good who aren't doing pure ed tech. It was a great conference. It was really good to be there. It was pretty well attended. I have to say that probably the global aspect of it was a little dampened, I think, by uh, two factors. One was COVID. So probably people were hesitant to come to the U.S. or unable to come to the U.S. And also, I think the uh, changes in China, where the Chinese government has come down pretty hard on some of the companies that were mainstays in the last few years of ASU GSV. Yeah. For example, Tall Education typically would have had a large booth there and a lot of folks. And uh, I didn't see many folks around. So it was much more a North American conference than it has been in the past years. It has been acceleratingly a a um, global conference. And I think there was a little bit of pullback this year. Nonetheless, a lot of attendance, a lot of folks there and a lot of action on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And then the proxemics, the ways in which humans relate to each other in space 
and also conventions around wearing masks and COVID testing and comfort at the hotel lobby bar in no particular order. I'd be curious what your impressions were attending a conference in August of 2021 versus attending it in the pre-pandemic time. So, you know, it was just going to be a conference and it was actually very booked. I could not get a room at the hotel, the conference hotel. I had to go offsite. It was very booked. It seemed like maybe some folks did not show up because I knew that hotel rooms were opening up. There were cascading notices. So the first notice was you have to get COVID tested 72 hours of showing up. You have to get COVID tested within 72 hours of registering at the conference. That was the first message. And the next message was, we're going to be wearing masks everywhere at the Mm -hmm. conference, Mm -hmm. including the hotel bar and lobby. Well, you can kind of guess that maybe there weren't that many masks at the bar. But other than that, it was a pretty masked conference. The speakers on the stage weren't masked, but all the audience members were. Mm -hmm. And this was an interesting experience because as you're passing each other in the hallway, you're always looking around for people, but this time you're not quite sure if you know them or not. Right. (laughs) So there's a lot of looking into strangers' eyes and saying, do I know you? Do you know me? Yeah. And then as you see them smile, the squinting on near the eyes, or they realize, no, we don't know each other. We're just staring into each other's eyes beseechingly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it was unique. Uh, That being said. Quick reflection that we may be launching new generations of super flirters because all we have are our eyes at the hotel lobby bar. The other thing I'd say is the meeting up with people seem to have a certain immediacy that sometimes at conferences you're worn out. And you're yeah. People were very eager to talk to other people and you felt that. And I'd say that people were probably even a little more vulnerable and a little more willing to reveal both triumphs and challenges that they've been facing. Mm-hmm. So I found the person-to-person conversation also extremely pleasurable and, uh, and and I learned a lot. Yeah. And it's also my impression, I've likened it to Davos or Sun Valley. The people who are there are pot committed. There's a little bit of uh, Leon Festinger and cognitive dis- dissonance happening here. Those are the references that I'm using, Mike, and I'm sticking with it. Okay. What's Le- who's Leon Festinger? Leon Festinger was a <laughs> psychologist back in the mid 20th century who studied cognitive dissonance, okay. which basically said when what happens in the world disconnects with your cognitive framework, you frequently adjust the cognitive framework to match what you're observing. So the idea is if you spent a lot on a conference, you're more likely to find the conference worthwhile than if you're not spending anything on the conference. And then if you add to that, I spent nothing and I'm not even committing my time or my physical presence to this conference, there's a very light commitment and you can just let it go. Whereas once you invest in the admission, the airfare, The rigmarole is the word that I'm using to describe whatever new complexity around getting COVID tested, showing your paperwork, understanding whatever mask drama is going to be part of the subtext. Yeah. Once you have invested in getting through all that, you're more invested in continuing to lean in and power through. So does that make sense? Right. I think that's right. This might be called the endowment effect. Let me tell you when you have spent two hours waiting online so that you can insert a swab into your nose and circle around five times and then switch over the other nostril and do it another five times in front of a total stranger. Yeah. 
That's the kind of endowment effect that's uh, hard to replicate. It's a bit of a rite of initiation to a certain extent. You are now part of an elite tribe. The numbers were probably beyond tribal, but I imagine the group sizes were probably more like the Jeff Bezos to pizza rule where you would frequently have a manageable number. Did you ever feel like things were overcrowded while you were out there? Joining that tribe of nasal swabbers, there were quite a few people there, but we found our tribes therein. So mm-hmm. there's definitely the ex-Kaplan tribe was around. Yeah. Um, we found each other. And I worked for a company called Schoolnet that was later uh, acquired by Pearson. So the Schoolnet tribe, and many of us hadn't seen each other really literally in 10 years and finding ourselves there and having gone through the same rites of passage, the same hazing, if you will, yeah. probably sweetened the, the meeting. Yeah. Yeah. And I got to say though, I think face paint was probably a little too much, but I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. There was little or no face paint to the best of my knowledge. That's just a a spurious rumor, but, uh, but then the Kaplan purple, all that, all that half my chest and the other chest. Oh, uh, wow. I didn't even think about that. But then you spent, you were somewhat intentional about your time. So in addition to the benefits of being present with other people and being able to engage, there are some concerns around the haves versus the have-nots, where the haves go to the conference and the have-nots engage online and there winds up being a separation as opposed to maybe more of a connection that could happen there. Putting that critique aside, it sounds like once you're there, you have value in the experience of being there and that you had the added value, Mike, of attacking the agenda in a way that would give you a nice through line around the use of artificial intelligence and just generally trends in the broader ed tech space. Can you walk us through maybe what you were trying to get out of the conference and how you designed your plan of attack? Right. So yeah, the conference typically for me in the past has been, I'm representing the company I'm working for. So there's a lot of focus on that. I didn't have this time Mm -hmm. because the company I work for right now is not in the ed tech space. So I had a little bit more of a free reign. I was not tied to a booth, for example. So that was nice. But I really focused on, A, meeting some folks I haven't seen in a while and some serendipitous encounters as well. And then I decided to not bounce around from you know this to that to the other talk, but really focus on the AI and related talks where I could. Mm-hmm. I thought, hey, why don't I really dig into this and really try to see if I can build my knowledge over the course of a day and a half and actually learn something that's meaningful and relatively deep rather than just the surface levels. Yeah. And and then putting this in a little bit of broader perspective around ed tech, one of your takeaways is that ed tech itself is on fire. I think it, that means in a good way. It's like in Fuego, he's heating up, it's lit, it's on fire as like this girl is on fire. It's like that kind of on fire, right? Yeah, a very Alicia Keys on fire in this case. Uh, Absolutely. I think this is accelerated by a number of trends. The most obvious one being the pandemic, obviously, which showed us that that maybe a year and a half of pure online wasn't great, but there was something of potential value there in a hybrid model. Other things happened as well, but I think that's one of the crucial one. And AI, which we'll talk more about clearly. So I think the last ASU GSV I went to is maybe three years ago. I'm losing time. I think most of us have. And there might've been, there were definitely fewer than 10 unicorns. A unicorn is a company with a billion dollar valuation. Yeah, There were fewer than 10 unicorns. It might've been three or four, Mike, right? 
this time, Michael Moe, who's one of the founders of conference, tells us that there are 44 unicorns in the yeah. tech space. So mm -hmm. that's an enormous acceleration over a couple of years. It, it also and, it also sounds like a great title to an to a ed tech children's book. 44, 40, unicorns? 44 unicorns in the ed tech space. It does sound delightful. And the other thing he pointed out, given all that, there's still room for much, much more. Because if you compare ed tech to a field of a similar size like healthcare, if you compare education and healthcare, and you look at the percentage that is currently being represented by ed tech companies versus health tech companies, there's no comparison. Ed yeah. tech companies are still a tiny little bit right. uh, of the thing. So there's a lot of potential upside incredible amount of potential upside still in the space. Yeah. And uh, related to that, I think also medical education, places where education intersects with this massive trend around healthcare is another space that, that I know uh, you and I have talked about in the past, but we wanted to focus in a little more on artificial intelligence. When you and I were, were going back and forth a little bit, getting this conversation together, we were also talking about the concept of an AI winter versus an AI spring or summer right. or whichever season we may be in, the level to which R&D is happening, the level to which dollars are being spent in artificial intelligence has gone through hype cycles and trends back and forth. We're now at a point where there is ed tech spending capacity. Folks uh, who have had their capital on the sidelines are ready to spend a little bit more one place where they may be spending is AI as it relates to ed tech. Can you give us some context around AI spending patterns, AI winters, and where you think we might be around AI and ed tech? Yeah. I just talked about how great ed tech is and how the greatest taken off. The other side of it, this is that the outcomes, however, are not commensurate. And in fact, what we've seen in the pandemic has been not a closing of the gap, but maybe an increasing and accelerating gap between the haves and have nots. And I think AI fits in very nicely in there. The people I saw talking about this really thought there's an opportunity for AI to narrow this gap by making uh, high quality instruction cheaper, more accessible, and, and this is where AI can really shine, individualized to meet the real differentiation and needs amongst the many students. This is the, this is the holy grail of personalized learning. It is, right. And, and the beautiful thing here is the idea of it actually helping, say, the 15% of students that one of the one of the participants talked about it as being on the autistic spectrum. Mm -hmm. So, okay, AI winters and summers. Let's talk a little bit about that. So the original AI winter came after an initial AI summer. In the 80s, there was a lot of focus on what were called uh, expert systems. So it was the idea was that you wrote a bunch of LISP, which was this early kind of language and AI, you wrote a bunch of LISP rules. You just kept creating these LISP rules. And eventually you would get to the spot where that thing would be smart enough to do stuff. And there, by the way, there are areas in which there were some successes, like in diagnosing particular illnesses. It could yep. be a nice assistant to a doctor. Mm -hmm. It's hard to scale that. And it really wasn't taking off. And AI as a field got depressed, say in the nineties and coming into the past 10-ish years, Another kind of um, thread that was already there really took off. And that was the idea of neural networks. And so folks like Jeff Hinton has been working in neural networks since the, the 80s. He was in the background talking about how important this was. Not a lot of people are listening. What happened was that that accelerated this was sheer amount of data that has been gathered 
uh, through all, all sorts of things, obviously mm-hmm. on the web, but through all sorts of, th- there's just so much data. Yeah. And they realized that using that data, they could create new models of AI that didn't rely on people handwriting every single instance. Right. The machine would teach itself. That's a simple way of talking about machine learning. The machine discovers the difference between two things and can then predict it in the future mm-hmm. uh, based on its own discovery within the statistics of that data set. Yeah, yeah. And that has been obviously accelerating. Some of the most famous things are the deep mind successes in Go and then chess and in poker, but also I think more broadly in recommendation systems, which, and if you think about recommendation systems, you can see how that could be a nice pathway to things like adaptive learning, right? Yeah. Oh, you're good at this. What about that? Oh, you're a little weaker here. What Mm -hmm. about that? So that's where the AI winter and summer, and it really feels like we've been in, we hope in summer, there are people who are writing papers and saying, this is petering out too. There are people who are writing papers saying it is just early days and it's Mm going to take off. And I think the overall consensus at this conference was the latter in the the educational space. There is tons of room for AI to affect great positive change. Yeah. And getting back to your point, there's probably some incentive to just spend the money. Even if you understand that the return may not be 100% there, the way we're going to move forward is through some investment. And then hopefully there'll be some breakthroughs that will allow for some genuine transformation. In terms of the design concept, though, when you get investors connected to developers and Silicon Valley, frequently the teacher gets lost in the middle. We've talked a lot on the show about human-centered design practices. We recently had Tony Wan on the show from Reach Capital, who were talking about investing in the tools that help make the teachers and the people who deliver the instruction better. What was the the more humanistic aspect of the conversation? What kind of themes were emerging while you were out there? Yeah. So Broer Saxberg, who both Mike and I worked with back at Kaplan, who's now at Chan Zuckerberg Institute, pointed out that he's still seeing many products that are reaching kind of this investment phase where neither teacher nor student have been involved in the process. And he brought up the term that's very occurrent, which is inclusive design, that you need to involve the teacher and the student from the very earliest days. You don't take a technology and try to build into the adaptive learning. You try to find out what their pain points are, what their issues are, what the challenges and what the opportunities are, and you adapt the technology to meet their needs. Yeah. And then the idea of ethics is something that has come up a little bit more when you think about use of AI just as much as it could be gap narrowing, it could also be gap widening. Algorithmic bias is a theme that's out there quite a bit, particularly around job placement, where it seems like there's been an awakening so that there's a little more critical thought being applied to the use of AI to solve these types of problems. How did the ethical side of the conversation play out at ASU GSV? Yeah. One of the most interesting concepts I heard of there was presented by Frida Polly of Pymetrics. She actually wasn't able to attend the conference at the last minute, but she sent in a notice that was read by Jason Palmer, who was running the session. And she talked about an emissions standards for AI, which is a great 
metaphor that we have emission standards for cars, but we don't have an emission standards for AI, a way of measuring the racial, gender, and other biases that are being presented by a particular AI model. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was a, a great notion. Okay, so that's great. So once you find out what's wrong, how do you fix things? This is where you get into data. I know data is not the most exciting topic, but it's really crucial. It is, as people have pointed out, the oil of our economy. It's, it is important to talk about. And Michelle Barrett of Edmentum talked about for AI systems built on machine learning, quality data is key. And you not only need to ask the question, now, who collected this data, but who decided what data to collect? And mm -hmm. she proposed who was in the room when those decisions were made, mm -hmm. that there has to be representation in the room as you make these data design decisions, which in my experience isn't happening right now very often. Yeah. Uh, these, these decisions are being made from purely pragmatic point of view, what do I need to get this thing running? And, and not necessarily from uh, this other view. And, and my apologies to anybody who is taking this seriously and has been doing this. And I'm sure that some, there are some people out there, but I don't think this is being done enough. Yeah. Yeah. And then how about looking ahead in terms of the, the future of work? In addition to Nancy as a virtual host, we are also starting to see technology start to blend into what teachers have traditionally done What's your perspective there? How do you see us navigating through this? Do you feel like there was enough representation of the, the voice of the teacher and the boots on the ground instructional design? Or was it a little more captains of industry wheeling and dealing without necessarily a connection to actual instructional engagement, the relationship between a, a teacher and a student? Yeah, that's a really good question. And this is where there were definitely some fissures uh, amongst the, the participants. In, in general, people talked about keeping the teacher in the loop, but there's still questions about exactly what is it that the AI can do? So Satya Nitta of Merlin Mind talked about his experience with Watson trying to build a tutor and finding out that one of the biggest challenges was the acceptance by the student, whether or not the student would accept him. And so with Merlin in mind, they're much more focused on handling all the bureaucratic stuff that the teachers do. There's some interesting statistics that suggest teachers spend as little as one day per a five-day week actually working directly with students. And they're spending mm -hmm. a lot of the rest of the time on bureaucratic things. So how can you support the teacher with something that takes away that bureaucratic load? Yeah. Uh, so that's his focus. Other people are focused on pretty strong tutoring systems. Yair Shapira of Amplio talks about how hard it is for teachers to serve the broad range of needs of the students. He can help free up the teacher to do a lot of the teaching by helping the students who have these different needs. And he believes that his systems have shown sometimes like 10x in uptake of knowledge using a, a tutoring system. And then there's finally somebody like Rohan Gupta of Coolbot. It says, I, yeah, we keep a human in the loop. The human's the student. Mm -hmm. And so what he's working on is a system which actually helps teach students writing. Let's them focus on things like the deployment of, of the argument and the deployment of evidence while helping them do some of the other writing skills. And he really feels the role of the teacher then is to explain and work with the students on the proper use of that tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then there's other technologies around the surveillance state around testing is the way I tend to think about it. How do you make sure that this is actually a human generating this uh, content themselves? And to me, this all comes back to these day-to-day -to -day Turing tests that are happening where we're trying to figure out whether something is authentically human 
or not. We're getting towards the free form stage of the conversation, Mike. So, so any, <laughs> any, anything science fiction related, anything right, right. future oriented that, that kind of got your wheels turning while you were out there? John Delaney has a great riff on how he spends his day proving that he's a human to computers that I recommend people check out. But it's very interesting. So one challenge that we talked about that was spoken about is the use of these NLGs. You'll hear this now, natural language generators, NLGs, NLGs in the classroom. It was pointed out that when calculators first entered the classroom, there was a lot of sense that's cheating. But now we understand, no, it's actually important that people learn how to use calculator and then they should focus on solving the problems that the calculator makes easier to solve. The same way with NLGs coming, folks. Students are going to use it to write their papers. What we got to do is help them understand how to use it well. That was really contentious. I think mm-hmm. that's one of the most contentious uh, parts of this discussion. Yeah. Yeah. And it does remind me a little bit of kids using Minecraft. Developing Minecraft is arguably positive in that they're developing the tools and the mindsets that are necessary for the types of jobs that might be emerging in the future. I think the same thing is true where teaching a kid to be savvy or even an adult to be savvy about the tooling that is out there so that they can in fact become more of an augmented human by virtue of the tools that they're able to supplement with. Really interesting stuff. So any predictions for you coming out of this? Any predictions that you heard? Any provocative thoughts, takeaways as we're getting closer to conclusion? Yeah, so a lot of the predictions that are interesting are around the direction that AI is heading. Is AI going to be this incredible revolutionary leap? Are we going to have full-scale, amazing tutors working with students? Or is, in fact, the much better, safer, and maybe more productive approach to focus on those very specific things that AI does very well? Not mm-hmm. just like recognizing cat photos, but the things they can do to support teachers and students. See AI as a tool in support of augmenting us, or is it going to be revolutionary? And I think that my sense is that both sides are running hard right now. It's a race. And the people who think it's all determinative, Ulrich Christensen of Area 9 said, I don't want to just use AI to replicate the current instructional effect that's going on in the classroom. I think it should reform all of education. I Mm -hmm. think education could be much better so what, what we're doing at Area 9 is not just replicating what's currently being done. So if you like Turing, Turing said, how do we know when a computer is smart? When it fools us. Nope, I'm not trying to replicate and create thing that fools us. I'm trying to create something that will, in fact, make education better. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are three different futures, the, the tutor, the tool, or the whole recreation of education. I would suggest anyone who's out there placing bets, place a bet on each one. Yeah. The long shot at the reform. The, the real quick hit at the tool, the individual tools, and a little money in that intermediate space where, where there, that we could see some real significant adaptive systems in the near future. Well, there you go. So the idea is bet and place a few different bets out there because it sounds like we're feeling kind of warm. It sounds like it's not an AI winter when it comes to how AI may intersect with education. It's a time where there's a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of dollars that uh, are ready to get out into this space. It's a time to to be playing with your head up in ed tech and make smart decisions about when you can go to a conference versus when you can enjoy the liberation from it. I will say the virtual experience, I was questioning why I was watching any of this live when there wasn't a lot of engagement with the remote audience. So I feel like if you're opening up a conference to 
a virtual audience, the next level will be when those connections can feel natural and ultimately beneficial to all parties. But I don't think we're anywhere near there today. So I was very happy to get you, Mike, who was boots on the ground, getting probably the deeper experience and then counter that with the other horn of the dilemma, which is I have all my time back to myself, but I don't really get much out of the experience. It sounds like you have a thought. I have two thoughts. I think in some ways, maybe we're in AI late summer, early fall. Okay. And, and so we're just beginning to harvest some of the stuff out of the field. Yeah. Some of the, the easy tools. And then we're also uh, looking at the apples and, and pears growing in the trees. And also we're planting seeds for next year. So uh-huh, it's uh-huh. it's all year round in AI, I'd argue. Your experience where you did not feel you were fully involved in the sessions. Actually, I, thought, I think it was mirrored a little bit in the sessions. There were many fewer questions. There was much less audience participation. Hmm. I think partly for the sheer reason we were wearing masks. They were unmasked. We were wearing masks. It's like we were muzzled. Yeah. I think I heard one question all the sessions I went to. So I do think that, in fact, some of what you were experiencing in terms of involvement was also uh, quite a bit dampened, even in the physical rooms. That's interesting. And I guess what you miss out on is all the stuff that isn't captured in a panel or in a formal session, the time at dinner or the time in the bar or the time in a meeting when uh, the real fruits of many of my conference experiences have come outside of the formal structure of the conference sessions. But uh, really great to get your perspective on uh, ASU GSV. Mike, thanks again for joining. Thank you, Mike. It's been a pleasure. It was, it was great going to the conference. It was great talking to you about it. Awesome. And if you're out there and you're listening, there's conferences for us to attend. If you run a conference, you want someone to, to provide a deeper dive, we're happy to go. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.